Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I invite you to take your copies of the scripture with me this morning and turn to the book of Exodus chapter 12. We'll read verses 1 through 28 this morning here in a moment. Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 28. The very end of the... The scriptures, we come to the book of Revelation, which is the book that people would like the pastor to preach on the most, and it's the book the pastor wants to avoid the most. But there, Jesus writes seven letters to seven churches. And at the end of each of those letters, we hear something like this. Now to him who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Why does Jesus say that? There are people who don't have ears out there in the world. Well, they might physically have ears, but do they spiritually have ears to hear? Do they have the spiritual ears to receive the message that comes from Jesus Christ you think that Jesus would say that to churches. We might understand it if Jesus says it to the world, because the world does not have ears to hear. But that Jesus would say that to churches. Now to him who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says. Do you have spiritual ears to hear this morning what God would say to you through his word. Would you stand with me as we read Exodus 1 through 20? The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old, 
You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you, on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may, he prepare by, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. To the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, who walks among this church, your lampstand, O Lord, give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. With major milestones in life come big events. A birthday, a wedding, a coming of age. The Jewish celebrate this, don't they? Bar mitzvahs. An anniversary, perhaps the adoption of a child. They are milestones to be remembered, milestones that are to be celebrated. They are so big, so important, you cannot and must not forget them. Yet, we are people who are prone to forget. Maybe we used to write ourselves sticky notes, put them somewhere in our house to remind us. Or maybe a write on our hands or a string on our finger. Put something somewhere obvious so you would see it and remember. Now we just say, okay, Google, set a reminder. Hey, Siri, set a reminder. As we come to the 10th and last plague of the Exodus, we come to what turns out to be a major milestone in the life of Israel. This plague, this strike of God upon Pharaoh and the land of Egypt would be one that was never to be forgotten because it is the plague that brings about the exodus. The exit of God's people from Egypt. It is this strike that brings the relief from the harsh oppression that they have been under. It is the final blow that frees them from the shackles of slavery. How big is this event? How, how important is what, about, is what is about to happen? It's so big and so important, it's never to be forgotten. It is so crucial, this event becomes part of who these people are. This event is tied to their identity. Would you ever forget who you are? Or maybe to ask it another way, would you ever forget whose you are? That is, who is it that you belong to? Are we ever in danger of identity amnesia? It's not that we're trying to change our identity. It's not that we're trying to pretend to be someone that we are not, although you could do this. For so many Christians, the greatest danger and struggle in life is simply lapsing in your memory about who you are. God accomplishes this great event so that the Israelites would not forget who they are and whose they are. And God's plan was so amazingly perfect in that it was not only focused on a single time and a single place, but his plan had great vision and scope, and he knew that the effects of this event would affect 
all of the other events in the course of biblical history. And ultimately, this event would affect what he would accomplish in the whole world. Is it easy for us to come to this place on Sunday morning and say, ah, yes, I remember who I am, but then on Monday morning we completely forget? And this event that we will talk about this morning is not only the heart of the Old Testament, it is the heart of the whole Bible. So much so that if you know this event, you see it everywhere in not only the Old Testament, but the New Testament. You can't get away from it. It comes up time and time and time and time and time again. It is there at the climax, the apex of all of human history, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And while we look at Exodus 12, the focus here is narrow. The focus is on Egypt and Israel. The focus one day will broaden to focus on the culmination and the climax of this event that has ramifications on the entire world. This event we've just read about is what we know as the Passover. You can hear in the name of the event the action that the Lord takes. It's the action of the Lord passing over the houses of the Israelites. That's what he is doing. That's the action that he is taking. And so that action is built into this very word. This verb is built into this proper noun, Passover, of what God is about to do. Such a passing over spares the Israelites. It saves them so that they would not be stricken, struck by the Lord and destroyed. What's the purpose of this action? Why does the Lord take this action of Passover? Is the purpose to show the sinfulness of Egypt and Pharaoh? That is there. Or is the purpose to focus on the Israelite and the place of distinction that they hold in God's eyes? That is there as well. But I would say the purpose of God's action in the Passover is to display his own glory. And to display it in such a fashion that God's people and God's enemies and everyone in the whole entire world cannot deny that he is Lord over everything and that he is the one who rightly deserves all of the glory. This is why verse 26 that we just read, or verse 27, you shall say it is the sacrifice of what? Of the Lord's Passover. It is his Passover. It's not Egypt's Passover. It's not Israel's Passover. It's not even your Passover. It is the Lord's Passover. It is about him. He brings it about to bring people to himself for his redemptive purpose and so that he would be glorified. It belongs to him. It is meant to bring him praise. And is meant to bring all of the people's attention 
with laser-like focus upon his greatness and upon his power and the fact that he is the great I am. He is Yahweh who delivers his people. And so let us not lose focus on what the Passover is really about and to whom the Passover leads us to. What might we learn, though, from the Passover? And what does this monumental event have to do with our lives today? These truths that we will talk about this morning are radiating from this passage. And these are truths that while they radiate from this text, they continue to radiate throughout the rest of God's Word. These are the truths that run straight through the Bible. They are truths that are essential and necessary because they are truths upon which our lives depend. And so as we come to the Passover, we have to see that the Passover brings about the exodus. We do not have exodus without the Passover. This is what the Lord uses in the life of his people and in the life of his enemies to bring about this amazing deliverance and exodus and salvation. So four truths I want us to focus on and because I've been building up just how momentous this event is, we'll tackle two of those truths this morning. So number one, you can follow along in your bulletin if that is helpful for you. Number one, the Lord's Passover begins God's provision of new life through the death of the old life. The Lord's Passover begins God's provision of the new life through the death of the old life. Would you ever like a do-over? Or maybe a clean slate to try again? I remember playing golf with my grandfather, and when you play with him, you play by his rules. And one of the most important rules of his golf game is you get two mulligans on every nine hole. Now, if you don't know what a mulligan is, let me try to explain. A mulligan is when you hit the ball so poorly, you say, I'm not going to count that hit. I'm not going to count that ball. I'm going to hit it again. I want to do over. Let me try to fix it. My problem is that whenever I took a mulligan, my second hit was worse than the first. <laughs> Should have just left it the way it was. It's one thing to take a do over on a golf course, but do you ever feel like you would? would like a do-over in life, a clean slate, a fresh start. Perhaps you have a list in your mind of everything that you would do differently. The announcement of the Passover to Moses and Aaron by the Lord is a new beginning, a fresh start, a clean slate, if you will. The announcement comes by saying this event of the Passover is so crucial, so important, it is going to be the first month of the year for Israel. This month would be known in Hebrew as Aviv. Later it would be changed to the month of Nisan after the exile to Babylon. But this became the very 
first month, the beginning of months, the first month of the year. And it would continue this way for all subsequent years. New year after new year after new year. Each year would begin with the Passover. Why would the Lord make this to be the case? It was first to remind them how integral this event was to their lives. What a way to start a new year. Look at what the Lord has done. Remember what the Lord has done. But the Passover is not just a reminder of what the Lord has done, but it also tells us of what the Lord continues to do. Looking back informs the present life now and gives us confidence and hope in the days ahead. So year after year, Israel was supposed to be brought back to the saving and redeeming God who had delivered them from their enemies, released them from their slavery, and brought them to himself. It was at the beginning of the year that this declaration was to be made. You are the Lord's people, and this is what the Lord has done for you and what he will continue to do for you so that he is exalted and glorified above everything and everyone else. How significant is this event? It's so significant that in essence, the Lord says this. This is so important, I'm going to reorient time around this event. I'm going to make it the sun around which the rest of time and the rest of life orbit. The cycle of the years would not wear this event out. The Lord gives it a place of prominence and of priority, saying, you are going to come back to it year after year after year, and you will never tire of it. Why will you never tire of it? When you know God and when you know what he has done, it never gets old or stale or irrelevant. And if we ever go through moments where we feel as if things in our spiritual life or in our Christianity or in our faith are stale or out of date or irrelevant, we have to realize the problem is not with God, the problem is with us. This moment of the Lord's Passover and this reorientation of time is also significant because it points us to something greater than a do-over and a fresh start. Think about this. Who wants a do-over or a fresh start if you have to stay in the same condition in which you are? So think about it for a moment for the Israelites. Would they want a fresh start or a do-over if they were still slaves in Egypt? They need something more. And that was what the Lord is giving them. He sets them free. He changes their condition. This is why I believe the Lord is not merely offering a clean start. He's offering something far better. He's offering a new creation. And what comes with the new creation? A new life 
through the death of the old life. The old life has to die. It has to come to an end. Otherwise, there is no new life. So how can I make such a claim that God is providing new creation and new life? I believe the text says it when it says this. You see this in verse 2. This month shall be for you the what? The beginning of months. Did you hear it? It's the beginning of months. And as you read with ears in tune with the rest of Scripture, where have we read about the beginning before? Well, we read about it at the very beginning in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's the same word, the same root word here that God is using. When he says this is going to be the beginning of months. What happened with Genesis 1.1 at the beginning? God created He called everything into existence by the word of his power. So what is happening at this beginning? The the reorienting of beginning of months. With this first new month, it is again a new creation. An event where the people's old way of life, all that they had known in Egypt, all of the oppression, all of the hardship, all of the suffering, all of the tribulation, all of the pain, all of the anguish, all of the slavery, everything that they had known on account of their harsh taskmasters, all of that would come to an end and they would be set free. God was creating new life for the Israelites through the Passover, a new beginning, a new creation. And suffice it to say for now, we'll unpack this more, but for now, the Lord's Passover culminates and is finally fulfilled in the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this event of new creation, of new life, points to the new creation and new life ultimately found in Jesus Christ. When we put our faith and trust in Him, when we repent of our sin, when we confess that He is Lord, the whole orientation of our lives completely revolves now around Him. It completely changes. He is now the Son around whom we orbit. And then we are new creations as those who have new life given to us so that we might live for Him and love Him with all that we are. Isn't this what even Paul teaches in Romans 6.4? says this, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that what? In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk what? In newness of life. That is what we want. That is what we desire. Newness of life. Or, for, or 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? He is a new creation. And here's the good news. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That is what we desire. The old has passed away to be given the new. So that you can walk in the newness of life. Perhaps you are here this morning longing for a do-over, wanting a fresh start, wishing there are things in your life you could have done differently. You don't need a mulligan. You need a new creation. You need to be released from your enslavement to sin and from sin's dominion. 
and find your freedom in Christ. It's when he brings you out of your old condition, when your old way of life, the life bound by sin and darkness, the life that follows the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself, the life that is consumed with self, when that self is put to death, then a new life, then a new love, and then new affections. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but what? Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And for Christians this morning, do you daily recognize the old life has been put to death? There is no gain for you there. There is no advantage for you there. There is nothing good. So there's nothing that you need to long for in the old life. You don't need to spend time thinking about the old life. You don't need to spend time pining for the old life. You don't need to indulge yourself with a little bit of the old life and its sinful appetites. What do we sing? Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound by nature's sin and night. Thine eye, God's eye, diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Why, why, why would we ever go back to the dungeon door and say, let me back in? You are united to Christ. You have everything. The dungeon has nothing to offer for your old life has passed away. The new life has come. Walk in the newness of this life. Number two. The Lord's Passover exemplifies God's way of salvation which comes through judgment. The Lord's Passover exemplifies God's way of salvation which comes through judgment. There are certain things that in our minds, they just go together. So, some word association? Peanut butter and jelly. Hammer and nails. Chicken and waffles. Don't knock it till you try it. Just saying. Things that go together. Things that you would think, I cannot have one without the other. And so, what do we love to talk about as a church? We love to talk about salvation. We love to talk about how people are saved. We love to talk about how we're saved, don't we? And what is it, what is it that goes with salvation in the Bible? It's God's judgment. More precisely, it is God's salvation that comes through judgment. If there is no judgment, there is nothing to be saved from. If we want salvation, if we are going to talk about salvation, 
if we're going to rejoice in our salvation, then at the same time, we're going to have to talk about God's judgment. We cannot and must not shy away from it because if we do, we then are proclaiming a salvation that is not really a salvation at all. The horror and the terror and the reality of God's judgment, the judgment that rightly falls upon sinners is what makes the salvation of sinners all the more joyous and spectacular. The true offer of salvation only rightly comes to sinners who are under God's judgment. And so this is a salvation that comes from God, which is experienced through the pouring out of His judgment, and it's all done for His glory. So we can th think through some major events in the Bible. This isn't just the Passover, which we'll look at in one moment. This is a whole host of events that we see in the Bible. Noah and the ark, salvation through judgment. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the preservation of Lot's family, salvation through judgment. When Abraham is commanded to sacrifice Isaac on the altar, but the Lord provides a ram caught in the thicket that takes Isaac's place, salvation through judgment. When David slays Goliath, the enemy of the living God, salvation through judgment. When Samson pushes the pillars in the house of the Philistines and the house comes tumbling down upon them, salvation through judgment. When Daniel is in the lion's den and he's saved and protected and preserved, and then what happens? Daniel's enemies are thrown into the lion's den. And you remember what it says there? They're consumed even before they hit the ground. Salvation through judgment. When Esther is used of the Lord to rescue the exiled Israelites, but wicked Haman is hung on the gallows that he had built with his very own hands. Salvation through judgment. We could go on and on, but those are just a few highlights. And it's the same thing we see here with the Passover. This is the last and final plague, the tenth strike upon Pharaoh and upon all the Egyptians. God's judgment in this tenth instance was a completion of what he was doing. He was fulfilling all of his judgment. And it was God's judgment that would come upon the firstborn in every house. They were going to die. In fact, all the firstborn, without distinction, were going to die. Didn't matter if you sat on the throne in Egypt. Didn't matter if you sat behind the grinding mill as the lowest of the slaves. Everyone and everyone in between was going to die. The firstborn of everyone was going to die. Yet the Lord provides a way of salvation for his people. They are given specific instructions. And these are specifically odd instructions, aren't they? I mean, imagine if we were giving these instructions today. What do you want me to do, God? What's the point of this? 
Why am I doing this? The Lord explains. On the tenth day of the month, they were to select a lamb, or we also find out that this could be a kid, kid as in a young goat, right? A lamb or a goat. One lamb for every household, or if the households were too small, they would join together. It later became in Jewish tradition that if they were going to combine two households, that that would be ten people or less. But a lamb for every household, or a lamb for two households, perhaps, if those households were small. The lamb was to be without blemish or spot. They were to watch over it and care for it until the 14th day, when everyone together, the whole of the congregation of Israel, would kill their lambs at twilight. Most likely this time designation is when the sun had set, but it was not completely dark yet. This was the beginning of the Passover day. This is how they counted days. They don't count days like we count days. The Passover day started with the setting of the sun. So there, the sun set. The whole congregation, the whole assembly, killed their lambs together. And here is how the judgment came. The lamb is sacrificed, killed, its blood is shed. And either judgment is going to come upon the firstborn or it's going to fall upon the lamb. Either way, judgment is coming. The people of Israel were to roast the lamb. They weren't to boil it. They weren't to eat it raw. They were to roast it. And then they were to eat it. Made me think, the idea of a barbecue on Independence Day started with God. <laughs> Here it is, this roasted lamb, most likely because they don't want to eat any of it raw. They eat this with bitter herbs, reminding them of the bitterness of their enslavement under Pharaoh. And any leftover meat they were to burn trusting that the Lord would provide the next day and to show that God's deliverance was immediate and a once-for-all rescuing and sparing of His people. You didn't need to keep on eating this lamb. You had a meal, you ate it once, and that was enough. It was once-for-all. They were to eat this meal in haste, ate it in a hurry, belts fastened, sandals on their feet, staves in their hand. They were ready to eat and run. Think of the family eating the meal in such a fashion. And it begs a question, how certain, how certain was it that the death of the firstborn would actually take place? It was so certain that these people were dressed to leave even before any firstborn was killed. Even before the event took place, they were ready for it to happen. They knew that God was going to accomplish what he said he would do. And so they trusted. They ate the meal in this way. And then it says they're to take a hyssop branch Dip it in the blood. This hyssop branch later in the Bible becomes synonymous with 
purity. They take this hyssop branch, they dip it in the blood of the lamb that was slain, and they begin to smear it, hit it, wipe it on the doorposts and the lintel of their door all around. And then look at verses 12 and 13 here. As they're doing this, Right before verse 12, it says, It is the Lord's Passover. Then verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. You see it there? The Lord is executing His judgments. And these judgments are falling upon not only the Egyptians, but also the gods of the Egyptians. The idols that they had worshipped were being shown to be false They cannot save anyone. They have no power. They have no rule. They have no authority. They have no reign, no right over any person or any heart. And therefore, they have no right to demand worship from anyone. And so God brings his judgment upon all of the Egyptian gods. And he says, this is how you will know I am the great I am when I do this. I will reveal myself through this. And then look at what it says, verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. The blood was to be a sign. It was to communicate something to the Israelites. It was to reassure them of God's promises. And look at this costly sacrifice that had been made. This costly sacrifice where life and death hang in the balance. Look at this sacrifice that reminds them of a covenant of blood that God had made with Abraham where God had walked through that bloody path of those animals that had been split apart saying everything of this relationship depends upon me and even if you fail, I will bear the consequences. The blood will be upon me. And so here now, are the Israelites who have smeared their doorposts and lintel with blood. But notice something. The Lord did not say to the Israelites, okay, Israelites, I want you to stare at that blood. And look at it. And I'm going to need you to make sure that your faith and your, your trust is strong in that blood. That's not what the Lord says, is it? What does he say? Look at verse 13 again. Second half now. And when I see the blood. When I see the blood. Israelites, it is not the activity of your faith that secures your salvation. It is the object of your faith that secures your salvation. Our faith is the means of God's salvation, but it is not the cause of it. He causes our salvation. He brings it about. He orchestrates it and fulfills the salvation that he has promised. Can you imagine the people in those homes that night There were some who maybe tossed and turned all night long. They were worried. 
would it really work? All that they had done, they prepared this meal, they speared the blood. Would God spare them? Perhaps there was doubt in their minds. Perhaps there was worry in their minds. Did the Lord really mean it? Perhaps there were others who slept like a baby. No problems, went to sleep that night. And which one of them were saved? Both of them. Why? Because the salvation ultimately depended upon what God did. He saw the blood. He passed over them. He ensured that they would not be destroyed. It was not the activity of their faith that made their faith valuable. It was the object of their faith that gave it all of its value. And this is where we see Jesus Christ hanging upon the cross. There is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it's right there that God's judgment and His wrath is being poured out upon His Son and our Savior. There is the judgment. And there is ultimately who we are being saved from. We are saved from our sins, yes. We are saved from ourselves, yes. We are saved from death and hell and the grave, yes. But ultimately, we are saved from the wrath and judgment of God. We are saved from God. And so it was Christ who went through judgment and the wrath of God. It was Christ's whose blood was shed so that all who put their faith and trust in Him would be shielded from the wrath of God. He is the object of our faith which makes our faith so valuable. And it's when we focus on the Savior that our faith is made strong. Why are we saved? Because God saw the blood of Jesus that was spilt on our behalf for us. Why did Peter sink in the water when he went out to Jesus who was walking on the water? Why did Thomas, one who had been with Jesus so long, why did he doubt? Why did Philip ask Jesus to show him the Father? Why did Mary ask who she thought was a gardener, where have you laid the body of Jesus? Where has he been taken? What do all of these have in common? Jesus, the Savior, and the object of their faith, faith, was right before them, standing in front of them. And for a moment, they had missed seeing him for who he truly was. Is Jesus Christ the object of your faith? 
and listen to what it says in Romans 3, 22 through 26. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a, listen to these words, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness in the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you hear those words? He is the propitiation by his blood. It's a big word. We probably don't go around saying propitiation much these days. But what is Paul saying? He's saying... Jesus Christ extinguished all of God's wrath there upon the cross. All of the wrath and judgment that should have rightly fallen on us, sinners, fell upon Christ. God does not and cannot sweep sin under the rug and pretend like it's not there. He can't forget about it. He doesn't say, ha, just give it time, it'll work itself out. He says, I have to judge sin. I am the holy God. In order to save people, I know that the only way I can rightly deal with sin is to send my own son. My son has to take the wrath. My son has to take the judgment. My son has to be forsaken by me. And so God showed himself to be the just justly dealing with sin and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus because as the blood of Jesus shields us from the wrath of God, forgives our sin, we're also given Christ's righteousness, declared righteous by God. What a picture of the fulfillment of the Lord's Passover. When God the Father saw the blood of Jesus shed for you, he passed over you, ensuring that his wrath and judgment and destruction would not fall upon you, but instead, you would be counted righteous in the sight of God. And God did not check to see who was worthy in the houses of Israel or who deserved it or who was good enough or who had done enough. He checked to see who was covered by the blood of the Lamb. So what do we sing? Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. 
Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Let not that ransom sinner die. The father hears him pray, his dear anointed one. He cannot turn away the presence of his son. His spirit answers to the blood. His spirit answers to the blood and tells me I am born of God. To God I'm reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Abba, Father Abba, I cry. Oh, the blood that we need, Father, it shields us from your wrath. The blood that comes to us because you are a gracious and good God, that comes to us not because we deserve it, definitely not because we have earned it, but comes to us as a gift. Oh, what a precious gift. Let us not spurn such a gift, but let us walk in newness of life. Let us live for you as those who are covered by the blood. Let us be those who have confidence now as we draw near to your throne of grace and mercy. And to know that this blood can wash us and cleanse us from all our sin. And to know that there is not one drop of blood, or not one drop of wrath, that is reserved for us because now Christ has taken it all upon himself and shed his blood. Father, if there's someone here today who is not covered by the blood, I pray that today they would come to Christ. For today they would see His worth, how valuable, how great He is. And that their affections would be changed, changed from no longer loving themselves, no longer loving this world, but now loving Christ, loving His Word, loving You, and living for You. That they would put their faith in Him. And that they would say, I don't need a do-over. I need a new condition. I need a new heart. I need to be a new creation. I need the old life to die and pass away. And I need to be given newness of life. And thank you, Father, that you grant that to all who call upon you. You do not turn them away. You welcome them into your family. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.